0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 131, Brown Danube. The rump state of Hungary entered the years of depression in a precarious spot. Familiar story, I know. The left had been long quashed, but a coterie of noble landholders who jealously kept a tight grip on power in the country had done a miserable job of managing the country for the past decade. Money was flowing in via foreign loans, But it wasn't going anywhere productive, it was just keeping the lights on. In some cases, I mean that literally. There was little investment into diversifying the economy away from the large farming operations that dominated Hungary and formed the bedrock of the establishment's power. As you may have heard in episodes previous, grain prices had bottomed out in these years and the government policy of subsidizing farmers proved unsustainable when foreign credit began to dry up. Prices for crops, already low compared to 1914 prices, fell to a third of that. Unemployment hit the familiar level of 20%, a milestone that seemed the baseline for every nation in the Depression years. The nation's industries, concentrated in the capital of Budapest, saw 15% of its factories close, with the urban workers suffering a much higher 30% unemployment rate. Tax hikes to those with any amount of income became the only way for the state to continue functioning. The gendarmes, the national police, were entrusted with collecting taxes out in the countryside regardless of the human cost, and they combed the rural villages and took their payments by force, confiscating livestock if they had to. Which might be a bad way of putting it, they didn't have to, they, they really wanted to. Small farmers also were very likely to have taken out loans in order to keep their operations going, making the burden of paying them back while also keeping up with the taxes uh, virtually impossible. A half million rural laborers were left without work, while the same number were forced to work for wages that could only keep them and their families starving and really no more. Naturally, there was an abundance of food. Hungary was a very productive agricultural nation, regardless of the Depression, but since it couldn't be sold profitably, it was left to rot. The main 1931 collapse of the Credit Anstalt Bank in Austria also set off a banking crisis that only exacerbated the problems. Even the people at the top started feeling pressure. The three major powers of the nation were the landowners, the business class, and the government's bureaucrats, and they all started publicly denouncing each other, seeing that maintaining the privileged position of all was becoming increasingly impossible. Somebody would have to be thrown under the bus. The long-time Prime Minister, Istvan Bethlen realized that his leadership was no longer tenable and resigned in August 1931. He had done much to establish the political status quo of the nation, and his resignation was a sign that turbulent times were ahead for the nation at the crossroads of Central Europe. His replacement was Count Gaula Caroli, a relative of the Count Karolyi who had attempted to set up a liberal government in the immediate aftermath of World War I he managed to secure a loan from France in order to keep the nation afloat in exchange for cooling it on the demands for a return of Hungary's lost territories. That wouldn't last long, and the agreement only angered the coalescing fascists in the country. Now, so far in Hungary, the fascists, or I suppose proto-fascists, haven't really been big players in the national administration. They had formed the base of support for Hungary's regent, Miklos Horthy, who still kept that title and watched over the government. But Horthy had drifted from his private army of the early 20s and was content to work with the establishment types that dominated the Bethlen government. Which, yes, did annoy the fascists to no end, but Horthy's position as the final arbiter in the state was backed by the regular army and really the state itself, so challenging him was a no-go. And this first wave of Hungarian fascists wasn't terribly revolutionary either. They themselves were pulled from the well-to-do, if not from the upper classes proper, They were army officers, successful businessmen, white-collar types. They advocated to dissolve democracy, establish a dictatorship, and take forceful measures to regain their lost territories, which is almost what all the conservative nobles wanted to do as well, and which is why the first wave of fascists were looked at with a shrug by them. The veneer of liberal democracy was mostly there to curry favor with the West. Hardly anybody was attached to it. So early fascists didn't use the same populist tactics that fascists elsewhere would use. Uh, Just a little additional background into the dynamics of Hungarian politics, the upper classes very deliberately kept the vast majority of their fellow Hungarians in poverty and ignorance. The idea of schooling the peasants to them was bad because they'd just get ideas of being equal to their social betters and would demand uh, more material benefits. So the countryside was starved for schools, and social mobility was incredibly difficult. The modestly-sized petite bourgeois was no better, as they feared having to part with the relative material gains that they had made if the filthy peasants were allowed to advance themselves. This did leave the question of what to do about all the professional jobs, including the government bureaucracy, ones that had to be filled by the educated, but whom the nobility refused to lower themselves by filling. The answer was non-Hungarian minorities. And even in the shrunken Hungarian state, there were two significant ones, Germans and Jews. Just as a reminder, ethnic Germans didn't just live in the borderlands of Poland and Czechoslovakia. They were scattered everywhere in Central Europe. This was due to medieval colonization and the fact that the Austro-Hungarian Empire kept much of the region open to settlement. Anyway, the Germans were uncontroversial enough at first. That was going to change, but not for a bit. And at first, neither were the Jews. Certainly, anti-Semitism existed, but among Hungary's elites, the ethnic group was much more important as a tool to keep the nation running, while keeping ethnic Hungarians subservient to the upper classes. The rise of fascism would create a much darker atmosphere for them, though, even before Hungary's particular brand became even more influenced by the Nazis. Okay, end of that digression. By the end of 1931, it looked as though the traditional, noble-dominated government had failed once again. The Unity Party, which had ruled since the establishment of the Hungarian state after the Civil War in 1919, appeared to be out of ideas in the face of the global crisis. And thanks to the crushing of the left of the Civil War and the purges that followed, answers weren't coming from that part of the political spectrum. Enter Gajula Gombos, a lieutenant general in the army and the minister of defense from 1929. He had been one of Horthy's early supporters, despite his own desires for power, and had directed many of the purges of the left in the 20s. Since then, he had been cobbling together a network of supporters among nationalists and army officers. There was no fascist party in existence just yet, and the movement was comprised of like-minded individuals with other attachments, as well as secret societies who held the goal of destroying democracy. Italy was already the nation's only ally, and Gombos and his ilk desperately wanted to remodel their own country along the same lines. And by 1932, these groups started organizing people in the streets to march and demand from the government a turn towards fascism. Ironically, the funding for all this came from Jewish financers. I mentioned that the three establishment factions that controlled the nation had started to turn against each other, and that Jews were allotted jobs the nobles needed to have staffed but didn't want to do themselves. In addition to being doctors, lawyers, and teachers, they were also financiers. And just in case you're wondering, yes, the first wave of Hungarian fascists were passionately anti-Semitic, embracing the Jews as an other type enemy to rail against while the country was still too weak to directly move against its many external enemies. The bankers, though, were both looking for protection from the landowners and bureaucrats and were probably thinking that if they actually gained power, it'd be like Mussolini's regime, which wasn't outwardly friendly per se, but wasn't actively destructive. It'd be something that could be worked with. The breaking point that threw them into the arms of Gombos were bills proposed by Karolyi to regulate stock exchange trades. Nothing explosive, but it sent them looking for allies of convenience anyway. Gombos, for his part, didn't look at the Jews as human beings, but oh boy did he ever take their money. And in the short term, it worked for everybody, and I emphasize short term there. Uh, fascist crowds took to the streets in early '32, and Karelyi withdrew the offending pieces of legislation. The street protests didn't let up, though, and Karolyi did himself no favors pushing through austerity measures that further eroded his base of support. And as 1932 wore on, it became apparent that these policies were having no effect, and the establishment turned against the prime minister. Bethlen nudged Caroli to follow his lead and resigned from his post, which he probably was relieved to do in September 1932. That was the window that Gombos had been waiting for, and Horthy picked him to become the next prime minister, hoping that Gombos would quiet the streets and steady the nation. The move would also not result in a huge change in the government's composition. Gombos himself was a member of the Unity Party, as again, the fascists were organized through personal relationships rather than political parties. Horthy also laid out some ground rules for Gombos to follow. He wouldn't touch the big estates of the landholders, he was to respect the working order of the government and not cut out the unity party or parliament from having any input, no funny business with the army, and finally, he wasn't to go after the Jews in any way. For the sake of achieving personal power, Gombos agreed to all those conditions and assumed command of the government. He announced his program of incremental reforms and general tolerance towards minorities, which set off a wave of surprise. For the establishment, the surprise was exceedingly pleasant. They were getting reassurances that their positions were secure. His more radical supporters were naturally dismayed that he had apparently sold out. But that was merely the public face he presented. Behind closed doors, he was the same man as ever he was a good example of someone who could work from inside a system and go unchanged from the experience. Instead of a dramatic march on Rome or even dramatic electoral successes, he played the appointments game. Whenever a posting came up in government ministries, he always had a guy ready, and they were always a fascist. Even in the unity party, he promoted those who shared the same ideals he did, and over the years, he steadily chipped away at the establishment's power. Special favor was shown to the men who had been involved in the White Terror after 1919, as they were considered both most in line with their leader, and had also proven that they could get their hands dirty. Bethlen, still active in the Unity Party, recognized this, but Gombos was playing by the rules and so could do nothing. And under his leadership, Gombos sought to turn the Unity Party into kind of a cocoon that a proper fascist party could spring from. He renamed it the Party of National Unity as the start of the rebrand. The party offices around the country became staffed with his men, and a party militia called the Advanced Guards was created, with every local branch having one. By 1935, the group counted 60,000 men and clearly were based on the black shirts and brown shirts found elsewhere. The guards would monitor their localities for political activity and enthusiastically broke up meetings of anyone that was unaffiliated with the government. Records were kept of any and all opposition figures, and the movements of their enemies were monitored. These men adopted the attitude of untouchables, paladins of fascism that couldn't be resisted. Use was made of ethnic Germans as well, so long as they agreed to put on a forward face of Hungarian culture. Gombos, after all, was himself of German descent, because of course he was. The main exception to his grasping, though, was the higher echelons of the army. Being a military man himself, Gombos knew that Horthy kept an eye on the higher appointments, but he again played the long game and focused on the junior officers, with the reasoning being that one day they would be elevated to the higher positions that were, at present moment, left alone. That isn't to say that everything went his way, though. Far from it. While Gombos was certainly busy in stacking the government with his supporters, he wasn't quite as successful pleasing people economically, there was still discontent on the streets and in the countryside, and his answer to the economic crisis was simply more austerity and higher taxes. It seemed that the best the prime minister could do was secure work for his supporters, leaning on business owners to focus on hiring school graduates who had also been members of fascist campus groups. This nudging extended to getting owners to fire Jewish workers to create spots for those young fascists. This went so far as him delivering the same demands to Jewish owners as well, Hey guys, don't hire from your own community, hire these guys who despise you to their very core. Circumstances became so dire that he was forced to renege on his promise of ignoring land reform, and in March 1934, Parliament approved a law transferring 8% of land held by the large estates to be sold to poor peasants. It wouldn't be free, but with a down payment, terms were offered for 47-year mortgages. For the truly impoverished peasantry, some 3 million of the nation's population, that desperately needed some kind of relief... The terms were still too much, and it was mostly an opportunity for the prosperous middle farmers to snap up some land. This all being said, there was little, if anything, that the government could possibly do in those circumstances. Hungary was a terribly undeveloped nation that had been dependent on a much larger, completely open imperial network to sustain itself. There simply wasn't the capital in the country available to pull itself out of the crisis. And everybody else in the neighborhood was throwing up trade barriers at the same time, precluding a unified response in the region. The failure of the establishment first-wave fascists gave rise to something new that they had not reckoned with, a populist variation of fascism much more akin to traditional Nazism. Like Nazism, this variant would find its greatest support among the middle class, especially the lower middle class which had grown terrified of losing their status during the Depression. They had also grown way more anti-Semitic as well, And while that had always been kind of a baseline, you know, anti-Semitism being more the rule than the exception, with the Depression in play, they figured that if the Jews had their material prosperity taken away, uh, by what means that was supposed to, you know, come about was a matter of some debate, well, then Hungarians could help themselves to that prosperity and take it for themselves. The fact that Gombos had publicly declined to act against Jews meant that this increasingly radical and desperate section of society turned against him as well, taking their patronage to other groups. After 1931 in Hungary, there were a bewildering array of fascist groups. And I'm deliberately being vague when I say groups, because it ran the gamut from social clubs to student organizations to paramilitary units to actual political parties. Budapest and the smaller towns were blanketed with pamphlets and other propaganda calling for every variation of authoritarianism to be instituted in Hungary. And that is kind of what kept populist fascism from making a bigger impact for a little while there. There were a lot of people making noise and demonstrating out in the streets, but it was all diffused energy. Fascism was just floating around and the petty leaders were all in competition with one another. There was no Mussolini and there certainly was no Hitler. That was until Ferenc Zalazi appeared on the scene. This guy is going to be a long-running character in Hungarian politics, even though the first half of his career was kind of an undistinguished. I'm introducing him now because in the future, he will be the fascist leader that really matters in Hungarian politics. And he might have been considered an unlikely contender for the leadership of Hungarian fascism, on account of the fact he had an incredibly diverse heritage. His father was primarily Armenian, hailing originally from the Caucasus Mountains, but also including German, Slovak, Ruthenian, and just a smidge of Hungarian stock. So here we have a guy who rose to command a fascist movement but he could only barely claim to be part of the ethnic group he would put above all the others. But that's the fun thing about Hungarian society in those days. If you agreed to present yourself as Hungarian, speak the language, and play by society's conventions, then you could fake it. Unless you were Jewish. Then you were an outsider forever. Also, Salazi was one of the few Hungarian politicians with actual charisma, which never hurt. He hailed from eastern Slovakia and followed his dad into the army, becoming an officer and serving during World War I. He continued to rise through the ranks in the post-war years and was put onto the Hungarian general staff in 1925. By then, he started developing ideas about how society should be reordered and attracted Gombos's interest. The general kept an eye on the young officer and gradually became concerned that Salazi might disrupt his own rise to power. Still defense minister, Gombos assigned Selassie to postings on the frontier garrisons and additionally warned him to stay out of politics. Gombos probably thought that that was the end of it, but Salazi just got more time on his hands to suss out his own beliefs. In the end, he distinguished himself from other Hungarian fascists by rejecting Nazism, which everybody else in the 30s were copying as their blueprint. He advocated that Hungary restore its old borders, reincorporating Slovakia, Transylvania, Croatia, and adding Bosnia and Dalmatia, presumably because those were also old Habsburg lands that the Hungarians had gotten used to and because it would make the national borders look nicer on a map. This was the same position that most everybody else had, but Salazi made allowances for other nationalities. In zones where the minorities could muster an 80% or more majority, which was not a fair arrangement they'd have full autonomy. This basically meant that the zones taken from Yugoslavia would have a little special arrangement going on where the Croatians would be elevated to be partners. Nice of them, yeah. The minorities would be co-nationalist, and each group would better themselves under the umbrella of the Hungarian state. This was all fanciful dreaming, but showing even a smidge of tolerance already set him apart from the pack. Except for the Jews. They'd be persecuted and destroyed like under every other brand of fascism. Socially, he was uninterested in the peasants, and like pretty much every other non-peasant Hungarian, he dismissed this group as impossible to elevate. They'd wallow in ignorance and keep growing food for everybody else. The urban workers, though, were a slightly different story. While Salazi read all the Marxist thinkers, he rejected their focus on materialism as a distraction, and their internationalism as a plot to make the nation subservient to the Soviet Union the workers would have to abandon class struggle and embrace toil for the good of the country. In exchange, and this is where he actually has something to sell outside of nationalist glory, the workers would be rewarded by having its best examples elevated to be the new ruling class of the nation. The bureaucrats and landed elites were hopelessly corrupt and had to be removed, and those of demonstrable merit would take their place. This is probably the kind of thinking that convinced Gombos that this guy had to go. And of course, Selassie also called for a dictatorship backed by the army, and democracy was to be dissolved, yada yada. He had hit upon his broad program, but the thing was he was still an officer in the army and not involved with street politics. He drifted around seeing if far-right groups were interested in his program, and they weren't. And he even approached the Social Democrats, the stunted last vestige of the left, They looked at him like he was crazy and said, no, they weren't going to change their entire platform to suit him. By 1932, he was back in Budapest and working again on the general staff. But Gombos still had his eye on him and grew even more perturbed at Salazi's political awakening. He first tried to convince him to join his own network of fascists within the government and the army. But that would mean agreeing to serve Gombo's and the slow and steady method. And Salazi's dreams were bigger than his superiors. Gombos curtly informed him that there was only room for one politicizing general staff officer and had Zelazi packed off to the frontier garrisons yet again. Now, Gombos didn't hate his young rival. Far from it, he actually respected him. He even felt that Zelazi would succeed him one day. He tried in 1933 to give Zelazi a seat in parliament, but was rebuffed. Zelazi's ideology was simply too important to be compromised by working with Gombos. Eventually, Zalazzi's grew fed up with being jerked around in the army, and on March 1st, 1935, he resigned to go found his own fascist party and go it alone. And when I say go it alone, he very nearly did. While he would, one day, achieve popularity through the Cross party, that group didn't materialize until years later, and he was stuck running a micro-party that got creamed in national elections. He was well-respected in the army and in fascist circles, but to much of the nation, he hadn't yet built up a base of support. He entered a doldrums period of political obscurity, but like most successful fascists, he simply chose not to go away. Despite all the setbacks and disinterest and lack of name recognition, he stayed in the game. And when we pick back up with Hungary later in the season, he'll be right there twisting the establishment's tail. But for the moment, Hungarian politics continued to revolve around Gombos. And by 1935, he was nearing the completion of his political project. The National Unity Party dominated the spring parliamentary elections, and the apparatus of the party was seemingly in his hands. Outside alliances had been built up, with Hungary participating with Italy and Austria in the 1934 Rome Protocols, a treaty of mutual defense. He also parlayed with Adolf Hitler, dangling Hungarian crops in exchange for support in revising the the existing borders between Hungary and her neighbors. Small problem with those discussions that I want to stop and talk about. A reasonable observation would be that a small nation like Hungary couldn't possibly engage in power politics with countries the size of Italy and Germany, correct? Yes, of course that's correct. Gombos, and many Hungarian elites for that matter, were nationalists in a way that was legitimately delusional. Gombos saw himself as a fulcrum to an eventual Rome-Berlin-Budapest axis, with Hungary as a smaller but equal partner. He might have been thinking in terms of if Hungary were able to regain her lost territories, which in the minds of Hungarian nationalists was always a given, but even if that were to magically occur overnight, the population imbalance between Hungary and the other two would still be huge, and economically speaking, the lost territories would be wholly inadequate to catch Hungary up to them. From every rational perspective, Hungary could only be a plaything. The Nationalists, though, didn't see it that way, and so they entered the diplomatic cage with much bigger fascist states than they. I already discussed that Mussolini wanted them only as an ally to block Germany's expansion into Austria and to outflank Yugoslavia. Hitler wanted Hungary to put pressure on Czechoslovakia and for a reliable food supply, nothing more. When Gombos tried to bring up territorial claims outside of Czechoslovakia, Hitler shut him down and insisted he get along with his other neighbors. Heck, when King Alexander of Yugoslavia was assassinated in Marseille, Mussolini threw him under the bus and blamed the whole thing on Hungary, despite both nations hosting Ustashi and VMRO training facilities. Still, Gombos went to the end of his days, thinking that he was the equal of his counterparts. And that end was coming sooner than he probably planned on, As 1936 dawned, he felt finally ready to abandon his compromises of his early days in power and to rule as he saw fit, Horthy or no Horthy. But for him, it was too late. Turned out, he was suffering from terminal cancer, and his clock had run out. He entered a sanitarium and died in October 1936. It immediately became apparent that he had failed to groom an heir to his project, as all the other fascist appointees and bureaucrats failed to fill the void he left behind. The traditional conservatives, who were still very much present in the National Unity Party and still unified by the former Prime Minister Bethlen, moved quickly to regain the party apparatus. This was accomplished with astonishing ease, and it was apparent that among the early fascists that the only one with a clear vision was Gombos himself. His incapacitation and death would signal a conservative backlash against fascism that I will pick up with when I return to Hungary down the road." The latter 30s would be among the only where the conservatives could actually take concrete steps to neutralize the fascists in their ranks. Not get rid of them. Oh no, they saw eye to eye on too many issues to consider doing that. But they did check the most rabid of them, although don't celebrate too much. The conservatives were still nationalist landholders who treated their fellow people like dirt and looked opportunistically at the lands of their neighbors. So despite the march towards fascism kind of slowing down for a period, the progress of the ideology was not going to be rolled back. And if not for one untimely death, they could have fallen into open authoritarianism much faster than they eventually did. Instead, they settled for ultra-conservatism for a little while longer. All right, I am almost done with this particular miniseries, as once I complete these smaller stories coming out of the first years of the Depression, I'll be moving on to Germany's own experience in the period. I will be considering that its own miniseries because it's also going to cover the rise to power of Hitler and the Nazis, and that is going to be a doozy and will be a cornerstone miniseries of this podcast. Look forward to that by the end of the month. But next week, I'll drop in on Hungary's neighbor and arch rival, Romania, and cover how they did in the crisis and their own homegrown brand of fascism. Little spoiler, it went about as well as everywhere else I've been covering. Join me then. And as always, thank you very much for listening.